0: You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. We're going to be in Lamentations chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, open up in Lamentations chapter 4. Um, as many of you may know, we go through books of the Bible, and as we do that, we will hit certain tough texts. And so if this is your first time or you're fairly new to this church or a church, know that as we read through the Bible, um, it's not just the stereotypical good passages that you may be familiar with, you know, John three sixteen or Jesus wept. Um, there's some scripture that can be tough. And as we have encouraged our church to even read through the Bible in a year, you're going to be hitting this text, and it's going to be very tempting for you to question and wonder, what do I do with this? Or I'm going to go straight to those texts that I'm more familiar with and doesn't know how to explain. And so as we go through this, my prayer, my hope is that God will speak to you, revealing, showing you it is truly His Word. There is purpose here as hard as it may sound. And this entire book in Lamentations, uh, context wise, context-wise, this is Israel, God's people, who has been overtaken by their enemies, Babylon. And in God's sovereignty, we know we see what we read as it was consequential to their sin, and that God even uses it to warn us of his righteous anger and wrath for our sin. But this book also does teach us about suffering overall. And after the hope that we did here last week, that we know in the midst of such suffering, we can trust the Lord. That we must remember his love, his mercy. We must experience his faithfulness. He's true and we can trust him in the midst of this. It does turn into a hope. A hope that the world can't have in the midst of their suffering. Because we have the God that has defeated sin, Satan, and death. And there's hope. But as we're going to read this morning, we get back to the lament. Specifically in this chapter, chapter 4, we're going to read about the hypocrisy, injustice, and idolatry that was going on. Some of you guys, again, maybe you've grown up in church and now angry at the church. You're like, yes, I'm affirmed in all these things as you read the scripture here. So see the consequences of and within this, but God's purpose in the midst of it and warnings in certain ways and hope as well. So Lamentations chapter 4 starting off with verse 1 God's word says this how the gold has grown dim how the pure gold is changed the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold how they are regarded as earthen pots the work of a potter's Hand. This chapter opens with the illustration in these two verses of how the pure gold represented by God's people, Israel, has been scattered now, that they are regarded as human, earthly pots. And as we'll read further on, especially the leaders at this time, how he humbles them, as we learn in the rest of this chapter, because. Of their hypocrisy. Now, before I read on, I want to warn you, these next several verses are tough. And so I will explain a bit with it. But again, it's good for this explanation commentary to hear God's purpose for it instead of just reading and moving on. Verse 3. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people... "...has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps." Verse 6, "...for the chastisement of the daughter of my people." has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Verse 7, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are now not recognized in the streets Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Again, you may ask, like I would, like you would at home, just reading through the Bible and you get to this and you're like, I'm going to go to the book of John now, right? Why? Why such extremity? Why, as verse 6 says, the severe rebuke and, and, and reprimand for Israel who's represented in the daughter of my people or often in this book, the daughter of Zion, why is their rebuke greater then, what does verse 6 say? The punishment of Sodom. Let me warn you. As horrific as sin is, as unjust as this world is, I believe, I've said this before in our Mago Day series, I said this when preaching to our college students several years back, when studying the justice books of the Old Testament Micah, Amos, as unjust as this world is, I believe that there is greater consequences and a greater offense to the Lord in extreme hypocrisy amongst God's people concerning his justice. When it is God's people that is bringing about some of the greatest injustices, look at the book of Micah, Amos has described here. God takes greater offense. Verse 3, it says, even jackals, some of you guys don't know what those animals are. They're like kind of weird dog, wolf, hyena animals. They were often actually associated with ruined cities at this time. That's why he's talking about them. He said, even those animals, they will nurse their young. But look what he says next in verse 3. But God's people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. Now some of you guys are probably thinking, what does God have against ostriches? Right? Well, a little bit of context. Read what it says in Job 39, verses 13 through 18, especially when it comes to the nurturing, the parenting part. Job 39, 13 through 18, God's word, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are the pinions and plumage of love, question mark, But are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear. Because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. That may answer your question a little bit of what does God have against ostriches? There's actually lots of online theories about that. Does God hate ostriches? Why would he create them if they are of that? There was actually even one in my like deep search of this, okay? This is what I do. I don't just study the Bible. I, I, I go. It's probably not good. But I actually found a, a gentleman that was kind of in the deconstructing phase, and in his coming out post of I am now an agnostic, his title of that was I am an ostrich, okay? That's what it was. I am an ostrich. And so it was this whole coming out, I'm now agnostic and very kind of anti some of these things of Christianity, religion, and all these things. And he actually ended the post with this picture right here. How he's saying, I'm watching and listening because I want to protect and defend other people's happiness, even if it's sinful, as long as it doesn't harm anyone. So he's like, I'm watching and listening to you as an ostrich. Okay? So there's a whole bunch of things over there. In spite of this guy's conclusions... And more in alignment with Job 39, we know, we see this was because what the prophet is saying here is that the daughter of Zion, my people, God talked about his own people, the way they are treating their young and representing him, God, our heavenly father, who protects us, who provides for us, who loves and guides his children. They aren't even caring for their Verses 4 through 5 of Lamentations 4. At one time, their children were well fed and well taken care of. But now they're not being provided for. They're not taken care of. They're even starving. Verses 7 through 10 of Lamentations 4. The healthy have now shrunk to skin and bone. Those who were well fed, who, who were even wealthy, who were blessed in all those ways material-wise. They're now skin and bone that it has actually, as verses 7 through 10 concludes, become so bad between them that they have even resorted to cannibalism. That's what verse 10 said. And not just any cannibalism. This isn't like messed up Jeffrey Dahmer tricking strangers and then killing and eating them. But as verse 10 says... Heartbreakingly so. Once compassionate mothers boiling their own children to eat. And as verse 10 ends, that such a thing would be done amongst, what does it say there? My people. The daughter of Zion. Now the third time this phrase has been used in this chapter. God saying this. As my children, the covenantal language, my people, such injustices are being done. What a great, despicable injustice. Which is why, going back to verse 6 here, the rebuke of Israel is even greater than, what does it say? The punishment of the lost in heathen Sodom as bad as they were. What was represented in Sodom, you know, this day, this age, what's always associated with Sodom, oh, look it, it's the sin of homosexuality. All the worst sins that are involved in all that we go to. You want to see the wrath of God coming down in Sodom and Gomorrah and that we bring up all the time. But what does it say right here? The rebuke of the daughter of my people has been greater even than that. Why? Because God takes great offense when you are to be a witness and representative of Him. And you are doing some of the most horrific injustices out there. His holiness matters, His witness matters. And this actually goes back to my study on the justice prophets. Amos, Micah. I want to read specifically Micah 3, 1 through 3. This prophet says, and I said, Here are you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Again, this is God's people right here. Is it not for you to know justice? Out of all people, you are the ones that should know justice better than anyone. Verse 2. But you hate the good and you love the evil. You hate the good and love the evil. Who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them. And break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot. Like flesh in a cauldron. You who hate the lo- the good and love the evil, who are supposed to be the pastors, the shepherds, the leaders and Christians of the church of the day, is it not for you to know justice? Later in this chapter in Micah 3, he says in verse 4 that these hypocritical people will not be heard from the Lord. Verse 9, he says, you who detest justice and make what is crooked straight, calling what is evil good, You build, verse 10, you build your kingdoms with blood and with sin. And then as we go back to verse 3, comparing them to cannibalism, which we actually see then happen with what we read in Lamentations 4. We know that God takes his people's injustices a bit more serious, even than those who they don't know any better, don't have a relationship with the Lord? How can they value justice as we do according to what we believe and should be coming out of our hearts of sticking up, defending those who are innocent? And as we read on, especially the leaders. Because as we read in verses 11 through 20, Specifically, the hypocrisy and the sin of Israel's leaders. Look at verse 11. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. Which, as we read that, as much as that word that comes up, we're always like, oh, God is, God is loving and merciful. We saw that. Chapter 3, he's also wrathful. But when you read what we just read in verse 10, don't you want justice to be done? Yes? Yes? The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. And now look at verses 12 through 13 specifically to those who were looked upon as the leaders, not just looked upon, that had a God-given role to be the leaders. The prophets, the priests, and the kings. Verse 12. The kings of the earth, they did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Verse 13. Verse 13. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities, in word for sin, of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Again, those are the people God had given and trusted with an important role. Prophets, priests, and kings. This is happening because of the sins of them. And then justice is being done. Verse 14, they wandered blind through the streets, They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. I I can't but help to read verses 14 and 15 and not think if this is not kind of the inverse version of the unclean woman on the streets. Touching Jesus amongst the crowd and getting healed from him. As it says right here, they were so dirty, defiled with their blood, no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean. And how that lady at that time was looked upon, felt of, and then when she touched Jesus, (laughs) he heals her. Verse 16. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priest, no favor to the elders. Our eyes felled, ever watching, vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets, and our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end has come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us in the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. In verse 20, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed was captured in their pits of whom we said under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Okay, what do we learn from this text? As we see the hypocrisy and sin of not only God's people, but specifically in this chapter for God's leaders. We can take a very important lesson here. Church, let me encourage you. Do not view and treat people even if they are the ones that are known and seen have been given leadership as saviors. Do not view and treat people as saviors. Part of not only what we see here with the great injustices being done by these people of the Lord, but part of the heartbreaking consequences of this is when we put too much faith and trust in them over the message in the gospel that they are preaching and pointing to, forgetting it's God that actually does the work, not the person, and so that when they fall or when they are partaking in great injustices or when they are as hypocritical as it seems, we have our full faith and hope and trust in the one actually doing the work and not sinful human beings oh it is so important for us to believe that to understand that and I know what some of you guys are thinking that kind of sounds weird it seems to work against certain things you know like my disciples and the community group leaders and pastors and, and these last few weeks you've talked about like hiring hey here's our new full-time executive pastor we've been praying everything don't trust him what it's me as your shepherd saying, hey. Follow me as I follow Jesus in these ways. But the key is as I follow Jesus. It's Jesus that does the work. It's Jesus that did anything of good and should take full credit for any of that work, just like your disciples, community group leaders, just like the prophet, priest, and kings at that time. But if and when they fall, you can know, you can trust it was Jesus that did it, not of them. And your faith is not crumbling and shaken. You see, suffering as they were at that time can reveal such misplaced trust that we have in people. We come to recognize how much we start believing other people can fix those problems around us, whether that's in politics, whether that's in businesses, whether that's, again, religion. It's part of the reason Why we are so often enamored with fame and power. And we must remember, it's Jesus that does the work. Even verse 20 here shows the symbolic value of this. This lament reminds us there are limitations to human leadership. They are not ultimate. That God wants to use That leadership, he has purpose in that leadership. He gave them the important office and roles of the prophet, priest, and king. But when it went astray, when there was hypocrisy that no one can deny, when there was injustices being done to the one who should be leading and acting biblical justice, we can know, we can say, we should be able to believe they weren't my savior in the first place. I think I've mentioned this illustration or story before. But as I read and studied this, I can't but help to go back to it as I heartbreakingly witnessed this from afar. That The church that many of you guys know, I did not grow up in church. By God's grace, my parents grew up in a very unhealthy, dysfunctional kind of family situation. And when my parents came to know Christ and radically changed when I was in middle school, started kind of forcing my sister and I to go to church. And by God's grace, a few years later, I received Christ in high school. And I thank God, I praise him for during that special season in time, one at this church where under that pastor at the time, still to this very day, one of the best expository preachers that I have been under. To this day, why it started within me, the seed and passion of discipleship, because I saw him take my dad aside who needed discipleship as he became a Christian later in his life after years of Uh, alcoholic of abuse of affairs and then totally changed his life. And this pastor invested in him, discipled him. And as that student pastor did the same to me. And as we saw this great work that God did at this church. And then years later, when he called me to ministry and I'm in Bible college and from afar, I hear news, saw that this pastor, again, heartbreakingly walked away from his faith. That he not only vowed to now not be a Christian anymore, but abandoned his five kids and his wife, leaving them from some other woman, and just straight up gone. And as this church experienced this, I mean, it devastated the church. This wasn't arguing over carpet. This wasn't a new leaders coming in, changing things too fast. This was... From afar, what I believe and saw, prayed. A lot of people, a lot of people putting too much of their trust in the person rather than what the Lord did in using them. Like to this day, where I'm at, where my family's at, by God's grace, I saw they recognize God used them. But if they fall away, if there's now hints of hypocrisy and justice is being done, I know that's not true of my God. So as we read this, as heartbreaking as it is, we must remember, do not view and treat people as saviors. Putting your faith in them over the Jesus that they point to, and that's including myself. Church. It's Jesus that does any work, good work, and thing within me, within you. And for that matter, do not idolize or practice idolatry in the first place. In the book that I referenced last week, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy Discovering the Grace of Lament, Pastor Mark took note in this chapter that these spiritual leaders were most likely hypocrites. And in such serious sin, because of their own idolatry in the first place, they started putting other things before the Lord. And listen, church, we know we are all in danger of that. As John Calvin had once said, our hearts just natural reproducing idol factories. We are constantly tempted to put other things, other people in the place of what only the Lord should be and our heart of hearts worshiping him, putting him first, letting him rule and reign. And again, this really matters and matters because what a black eye can be for us as Christians, not only in the injustices or hypocrisy, but when we allow that to affect our very own faith, And on that note, let me just put this out there as well. Know this. Don't walk away and be like, see, I told you. And now, like, you're going to start your own blog about all the injustices and hypocrisy of the church. Yes, we do. and see a ton with it. But do know this. We're all hypocrites to an extent. We are. I mean, just like the Apostle Paul wrote, communicated that we relate with in Romans 7. It's a part of spiritual warfare. Why do I do the things that I do not want to do? Right? We all experience that. And in that, we must remember, we need grace. We need to extend grace. We need help. And it can be a God-given opportunity for us to call others to repent, to forgive, to, in the process and act, of restoration. Restoration. That is Christianity still. As horrible, as hard as this chapter is, we must recognize we are all to an extent hypocrites that need his grace and mercy. That it can be an opportunity for repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. And remember, the answer to such struggles with sin is, of course, who? Jesus. It's when we take our eyes off of Jesus. Even that last verse I read, verse 20. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said under his shadows, we shall shall live among the nations. You know, that verse right there doesn't just show the symbolic value of us seeing how people will at times let us down. But... In Augustine's magnum opus, The City of God, he points out how this verse is also a prophecy about Jesus, saying, Jeremiah, and prophesying about Christ, says, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was taken in our sins, thus briefly showing both that Christ is our Lord and that he is the one who suffered for us. Another reference to Jesus And our ultimate need for him from this chapter goes back to the failures of those leaders at that time in this text and how only Jesus can fulfill what Israel looked for in humans. When dealing with the hypocrisy and the sin of spiritual leaders, I'd mentioned it was specifically through Israel's prophets, priests, and kings and let me remind you how God used each one of those functions or those roles at that time, those offices, for his people. The office of prophet was used by God to give his people certain warnings, a vision for a pure, distinct nation or kingdom that represented God. The, provided, uh, the, the office of priest provided mediation and intercession for sin. People now had access to God and his presence through the temporary temple rites through that priest. In the office of king, they facilitated military and needed civil leadership, again, to reflect his kingdom. And that when these offices were used by God, it truly was a beautiful, beautiful thing. You can see why it would hurt, it could hurt, just like for many of us, hurts when a leader struggles or falls or fails. So you could see why these people would be so devastated Experiencing and seeing those now hypocritical and practicing unjust things. But we must know all of that was given. And what they need but was only temporary and a foreshadowing to what is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. See, at that time, We read verses 12 to 13. The kings of the earth did not believe nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets, the iniquities or sins of her priests who shed in the midst of her blood the blood of the righteous. In Jeremiah 5, when describing this time when Babylon took over the people of God in Israel, he said the prophets at that time gave false prophecies. The priests at that time ruled by their own authority and did not teach God's word anymore. And as we saw in verse 12 in Lamentations 4, the kings here have pride. And it was all to show that they weren't meant to fulfill such important needed roles or functions anyways, because what they really needed was Jesus. Because listen, church, Jesus perfectly fulfills each one of those functions as our great prophet, priest, and king. I want to conclude by reading Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 18. Read it with me. It's also on the screens to the left and right of me. God's word says and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make after them, that I will make with them after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You see here, Jesus fulfills every one of those functions that just like God's people at that time needed, we need. Because as verses 13 says, Jesus as king, he rules over us. As he sat down at the right hand of God, as We'll wait for that time that all enemies will be made a footstool under his feet. That is a king reference and him ruling and reigning over us. When we live in a world where it seems like so much is in control by Satan. I make so many mistakes when I try to lead myself and depend on myself and rule and reign with myself. But Jesus as king rules over all. That as we read in verses 15 through 17, Jesus as prophet speaks truth to us in a world full of lies. As it says here, the Holy Spirit bearing witness in those ways, reminding, sharing of the covenant that he gives us, that he writes on our hearts and our minds. He speaks truth and oh church, I don't know about you, but have you ever been hurt by lies, by manipulation, by deceit? And you find yourself feeling, thinking, wondering, how can I trust anyone, anything? And to be able to know I have a perfect God who will never, ever lie to me. Whatever he promises, whatever he says, he will fulfill. And then as this text shares, we not only have a perfect king and prophet, but a perfect priest who intercedes for us in what we need in a world full of sin. This chapter concludes with a joyful relief going back to Lamentations 4. Look at verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. He's telling God's people to rejoice and be glad because Babylon, who's representing the daughter of Edom, they now will receive the cup that Israel is bearing. They will become drunk, strip themselves bare. Look at verse 22 The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, now going back to God's people, Israel, it has now been accomplished. It is done, it is fulfilled, it is finished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your sin, O daughter of Edom, Babylon, he will punish. He will uncover your sins, like he says at the end of verse 21. This chapter concludes with a joyful relief because he tells God's people to rejoice and be glad because what you are praying for, for the Babylonians, they will get what Israel asks pleading their cause to bring justice to them in the same way that the same cup of wrath that Israel faces, it will pass to Babylon. Their sins will be exposed, but the people of God, verse 22, the punishment of your sins, O daughter of Zion, it is accomplished, it has been fulfilled, it is finished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Why? Especially after reading such hard things in chapter 4 that they are partaking in because someone will intercede on your behalf. Just like someone has interceded. On our behalf. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. The Old Testament priest. Was a temporary fix. To that problem we see here. They're just broken examples. Of the great high priest. Who was to come. That we have now. In Jesus. Who takes care of our sin problem. Through what we celebrate. And what we we remember today in the Lord's Supper, the cross. That he takes that sin once and for all, as Hebrews 10 says, upon himself, pays that penalty in order to bring us into a relationship with God as he continually draws near us near to him. And he does all of this because of what we read about last chapter, his great love for you because of his forever mercy and love that he pours out as mentioned in chapter three even when we don't deserve it and just think about that what sins are messing up your life right now what sins do you possibly enjoy right now but again we'll suffer consequences later What are you trying to ignore but Jesus as prophet who his spirit is warning you about maybe convicting you about or saying you know you can't keep hidden it will be exposed. And he says I will take them on my behalf to forgive and free you. I know why they are so heartbroken. Why it affects so many other things when they came to recognize our prophets, priests, and kings they're Doing the worst of the worst and what we need, but is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And, church, as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, we remember He intercedes on what we need the most, makes that way for a relationship with Him, forgives and frees us of our sins. That Jesus is our great high priest, both offers a sacrifice to God on our behalf, himself being that sacrifice, and fulfills everything we long for. Listen, church, he fulfills our spiritual longings when taking away that sin that separates us from God on the cross so that we can now have a relationship, be connected to God. He takes care of our social longings reconciling us not only to God, but to a church family that we remember in the Lord's Supper, that we've been adopted into this forever family, that we can truly share, live life with accountability, prayer for, be in the midst of the greatest needs and use these people. He takes care of our emotional longings when forgiving us of our sin. Sin that has made us feel condemned and shame that we've suffered consequences from. But now you are freed and forgiven. And he fulfills even our psychological longings as he heals and gives new regenerative life. The same power that the Holy Spirit had to rise Jesus Christ from the dead 3 days after he took our sins upon himself on the cross died for us that same power is now in you when receiving Christ as your lord and savior and gives a new life and that's why there's a great gift that Jesus gives the church he says remember these things when you partake in the lord's supper remember My body was broken for you. And my blood was shed. And what's representing that cup for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember, you are made one now with me. You are my people. Yes, your witness matters. But I also give you opportunity like this to repent of sin and be freed and forgiven.